a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is Hannah. I'm on staff here at High Point, and I'm joined by our lead pastor, Nick Gibson. Hey. Throughout 2021, our church has been going through the Old Testament prophetic book of Ezekiel. In this episode, we're going to revisit and review that series in preparation for returning to Ezekiel on January 2nd. We've had a few different series intermittently throughout the year, but... Don't forget the podcast. It's going to be great. This has been our mainstay, and we're going to whet your appetite, give you a teaser for why you should be excited that we're going back into Ezekiel Yeah, it's so easy to forget. Like, you know, we did it for a while, but then we got doing other things and... It's really easy to forget right. what we supposed we were supposed to have learned been learning. Right. So we started Ezekiel in May and we've covered a lot of ground, but since most people aren't that familiar with the book of Ezekiel, we wanted to review what we've learned, main themes, concepts to have in mind as we go back. So uh, first, can you give us a really brief refresher yeah. on the context of Ezekiel, both historically and within the overall narrative of scripture? Yeah, so the history of Israel breaks down into um, before the Exodus, the time of the patriarchs, right? Um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all that. And then they grow up into a nation while in Egypt. Egypt takes them captive. They come out in slavery through the Exodus, like the passing through the Red Sea. The next generation, after a bunch of bad things happening in the desert, goes into the Promised Land, which is modern-day Israel. It's divided into these 12 areas. They conquer it with God's help. And then after one generation of having what's what's called... Um, and then, oh, sorry. And then they have a number of what's called judges, which are essentially people who charismatically lead the people, but who aren't officially the king. And you follow them because you need their help, right? And then the last of the judges was a prophet judge named Samuel. And the people decided during the reign of Samuel, partly because Samuel's kids were not heirs to the godliness Samuel had demonstrated in his life, um, they asked for a king, which was a rejection of God's intention. But they got a king, um, and that first king was Saul. Saul was not a great king. Then they had David, who was a much better one. And the one that the new covenant is partly patterned after. And then David's son, Solomon, and then all the kings after that kind of have this like downward trend for about, you know, 390 years to 430, depending on how you're counting. And that's, that's relevant in Ezekiel. And so after multiple hundred years of the people not obeying God's law and not doing what they were told, not following his commandments, not being part of his covenant, not taking him seriously, um, they go on a really downward trend, not just spiritually, but like morally and ethically and in terms of violence and bloodshed and all those sorts of things to the point where God finally disciplines them through an exile. He has an external army come in, completely destroy um, their nation, and then take... In the first exile, basically the upper crust of the society, nobles, wealthy people, some artisans and artists, people like that. And, he, and they're taken, you know, several thousand people are taken in exile. The people who essentially lead the society in Israel are taken to the Kabar River Canal in Babylon, and they're just dumped there. And um, that's the first wave of the exile. There will be two more waves of exile until the final destruction of the, of the temple in Jerusalem. In 522, I can't remember the date off the top of my head. But I'm so disappointed that yeah. you don't have that on hand. <laughs> and that happens like, I know I should, because it happens in the book of Ezekiel. So the mm-hmm. first 20 or 24 or so chapters are before the final fall of Jerusalem. And so from exile, Ezekiel is prophesying back to the people in Israel and speaking to the people there that like the people in Israel could still repent. They still need to. They're, they're not going to, but they, they need to. And there's all these prophecies of God's coming judgment, which finally comes like two thirds of the way through the book of Ezekiel. 
So Ezekiel sits kind of between this first exile and then this last destruction of the city. And then that period of exile lasts 70 years and the Jews come back, they rebuild. There's a 400 year period of that rebuilding and time between that until the coming of the Messiah, Jesus and the New Testament. So for people who are wondering where this fits with other prophets and then historically, does Daniel overlap with this? Is this the same exile? Where's Yeah, Daniel was probably taken in the same exile because Daniel was like an upper crust kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently he and the three other men that we call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are actually their Babylonian names, right? Not their Jewish names, but um, they seem to have gone to like a different part of the country. And so God used them to protect his people and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, Dan- so that's one of the strange things is that Daniel is referred to a couple of times in the book of Ezekiel. And so you wonder, like, he must have been really famous mm-hmm. somehow. Because he's mentioned alongside of, um, like, Moses and Job. I can't, I can't think of the other. But, like, he's, he's mentioned as, like, one of the great wise people of all of Jewish history. And, like, if you could be as wise as Daniel, then you would be really something. And um, But Daniel was a contemporary of Ezekiel. So it's very rare in, in sacred scripture to have, like, a, con- a contemporary person be referred to in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they're pretty contemporary. And then Jeremiah is also contemporary. Jeremiah is actually in Jerusalem trying to do what Ezekiel is doing for Babylon. That's helpful. I don't often, we don't often hear the overlap of those books and what yeah. was happening around the same time. So Yeah, so Daniel's like in the capital and he's like literally in the center of the empire. Mm-hmm. The Kabar River and the Jewish settlement that Ezekiel is in is a little bit more off the beaten path. But it's where all the, it's where all these Jews are, right? So Ezekiel is within the enclave of Jews, right? And Jeremiah is literally in Jerusalem. And he's trying to get the people in Jerusalem to repent because God is, God is trying to get all of his people to turn to him in every place. And um, he doesn't seem to have a big problem with Daniel and his friends. Um, and that seems to be in God's province why he sends them to the capital city. Mm-hmm. He wants some faithful Jews in the capital city because he's going to do some really interesting things in, in the nation of Babylon. Mm-hmm. But Ezekiel and Jeremiah have the crappy job of trying. Well, I mean, Daniel and his friends I mean, went through plenty, right? Um, yeah, I guess they all had bad jobs, but they, but God used them all in really powerful ways. But Daniel was sort of successful in a way, right. ultimately, that Ezekiel and Jeremiah aren't. Mm-hmm. They're ultimately successful in that later generations, ultimately God turns around his people, but um, they don't really listen to him, mm-hmm. either Jeremiah nor Ezekiel. He says to both of them, these people are so stubborn, they're like flint, which is like the hardest stone that you could find in that region. And he said, and I'm going to make you harder than them. Mm-hmm. That's the only way you're going to stand up to them and survive. So. Um, Really exciting calling. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I want to say to some people that are a little bit tempered like me, because I, I have a personal defense mechanism. I, I fight when people want to fight me. Um, and it's important to recognize that this, the, the message of Ezekiel comes after 300, like about 400 years of God kindly and in very measured ways trying to get his people to listen. And so Ezekiel is a, a very, very strong, powerful seemingly like over the top, like it just seems like God's being too harsh. Mm-hmm. You have to understand it's historical context of 400 years of them just treating him like garbage and him mm-hmm. doing everything for them. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. As you were recounting the history of Israel, I was just kind of like subjectively thinking in my own head, which period was more depressing, the period of the judges or the period of the Kings and the divided kingdom. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it feels I, like a toss up to I, me. I would say the, the, yeah, I don't know. I mean, if you, if, yeah, because divided kingdom, like for Israel, the northern kingdom, they had no good kings. Yeah. So I'd say that's probably as depressing as the judges. Yeah. I think that the kings had more knowledge. 
don't know. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's it was bad. It was always bad. I mean, that's people don't realize how bright a spot David was. Right. Even for his faults, and David had many faults, but he was an incredible bright spot. Mm-hmm. And people, people like David, Nehemiah, Samuel, are incredibly rare, even mm-hmm. in sacred history. Great. Thank you for that um, review. So why did you originally feel that Ezekiel was an important book for us to spend so much time in? I mean, you mentioned recently somewhere you were like researching Ezekiel and you found like three churches who had recorded (laughs) sermons and they only like nobody goes through the whole book. So why did you want to take High Point through the whole book? Yeah, there's there's part of me that wants to like do stuff nobody else has done. Yeah, we know that part. (laughs) Cause everyone to suffer through it. Uh, But part of it was the more I read Ezekiel, the more I thought, this deserves to be exposited to God's people. And so there's two main reasons. The first is that um, the main metaphor in the new, one of the, one of the main metaphors in the new Testament for our experience as Christians today is that we are believers in exile. We're not in the promised land of the final kingdom of God. We exist dispersed among all the peoples of the world, like exiles. Um, and we're supposed to live among them for their good. That is, we live among the pagans or non-believers around us for their good and for the peace and prosperity of the societies in which we live, but still holding a distinct identity as believers, right? You can see this command in Jeremiah chapter 29, where Jeremiah writes from Jerusalem to the believers in where Ezekiel Ezekiel is. And he says, you've been hearing a prophet from here say, in three years, the exile will be over. That's not true. You're going to be there for 70 years. So buy land, plant vineyards, cultivate a life, but don't decrease as Jews increase marry each other, have children, be distinctively culturally Jewish, but be for the good and prosperity of the city of Babylon. You could do both. And that, that, um, I think that that is literally exactly true for us. Um, the Bible commands that Christians are supposed to marry Christians, that we're supposed to be a distinct people in the formation of our families and in the sub society of the church. Um, but we exist as ambassadors and, um, helpful foreigners in the city of the world for its good. And so, and we are its citizens, just like the Jewish people were, quote, citizens of Babylon, they were sociopolitically its citizens. They just spiritually weren't. Mm-hmm. And this, it's exactly the same for us. So there's a certain way in which understanding what life in exile is like is important. But I think even the second reason is even more salient, I think. And that is that the reason these folks were going into exile is because they had they weren't taking God seriously. And in and in the worldly world, not taking God seriously led to all the other problems that mm-hmm. were created in God's ultimate judgment. And when I look around at them, at the world we're living in right now, and just like all the accoutrements of technology and medicine and sugar and <laughs> video and all these sorts of things that we can just plunge our attention into every second, what I see more and more is even Christians just behaving like God is a very small thing a very to the side peripheral thing, something that that is a part of their life because it makes them feel good, but he is not this overwhelming majestic King and Lord that dictates their life such as that they would live unto martyrdom and give their all to him. And that's, and I see that as incredibly dangerous spiritually, because I think that if you don't see God for what he is, you don't believe in him. Hmm. And I'm not saying that God is an incredibly gracious and how he credits faith. I think he is very gracious in how he credits faith. But I just, I, I don't think it's like, you know, you're just not his. I think what, what happens is, is that if you are not his actively and fully, 
you fall further away as a human being mm-hmm. until you, to quote one passage in Ezekiel, you separate yourself from him mm-hmm. through your idolatry. And that leads to all the other sins that Ezekiel talks about. So for, for me, I think the biggest thing is if I could give high point one gift, it would be to see God in his like majestic largeness to see how he is absolutely enormous, that he is everywhere. He sees all, he is very real. He is way more complicated than we think. He is the reason why it seems like he's not here in the midst of all this evil around us is because of his patience Mm -hmm. in seeking to redeem sinners and that he has not been silent. He has spoken and shown himself over and over again. And all of this, all of what we, um, think of as him not acting is his is his kindness and i wish people could see that you mm-hmm. know because i think everything good flows from the fear of the lord mm-hmm. and an understanding of his covenantal love that mm-hmm. I, I, what's said more than anything in the book of ezekiel is and when i do these things you will know mm-hmm. that i am the lord mm-hmm. that is king that i am i'm the i am the master of all things right. and that's been god's passion i think that i think in that sense our culture is situated where we we think of god lightly where we act behave lewdly a word that comes up a number of times in ezekiel and it makes for a spiritually adulterous kind of behavior which is a huge theme in the book of ezekiel too mm-hmm. and so um how would have us be free of that mm-hmm. yeah as you were saying that um the way you phrased it of just taking god seriously i feel like uh I'm used to hearing like revering him, worshiping him, honoring him, obeying him, submitting to him. Um, so hearing it in kind of a more colloquial way of just like, yeah. just take him seriously. I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. People... It stings me in a fresh way. Yeah. I mean, that's way. the whole, I mean, you've heard me talk about my, my philosophy of saying sacred things in secular language. Right. That, like, it's the only way, right. But like I, I was, I was praying with an Indian guy several months ago. That's something I was at with Manohar. It was a guy named Abraham. And he, every time he would ask God for something, he would say, Lord, master, mm. Lord, master, Jesus. Mm. And he would, he would use the word master over and over and over again, Lord, master, Jesus. And I don't know him well enough to know if like he lived like he thought that way, but he certainly prayed that way. And I, it, it touched me and I was kind of like, okay, yeah, yeah. He is the Lord master. Mm. Like, so, and he prayed as though he was asking his absolute superior for something he didn't have to give him. Mm-hmm. that he had every ability to give him right. and who was generous. And so, yeah, I think that the majesty of God saves us from sin, but it also like encourages us. I mean, like it's, a, it's incredibly important. I think, I mean, God is very clear what he says, the fear, the fear of the Lord, knowing who God is, having that kind of like in your emotional bones mm-hmm. guides everything else. And yeah. the book of Ezekiel is designed to bring people as far as you can get from that back to it. Right. I think that's what resonates for me in reading Ezekiel is that, that theme of like, I'm doing this so that you will know, so that you will know. And then there's like one particular chapter where he really focuses like, so that the nations will know. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's that those twin loves of his, that his people would know and that the nations would know through his people. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. That's going to be one of the first sermons we'll do in the new year. mm -hmm. There's this one really terrible chapter. And I think it's chapter 20 where God basically says, I want the nations to know me. But I also want them to believe I'm good. Mm-hmm. So your behavior, Israel, is making this really difficult because either I have to not do anything and judge you and show that I am caring 
but the, but I'll also demonstrate that I'm wicked or I have to destroy you and confuse the nations about me being caring by being good. And you should never have put me in this position. And so for mm-hmm. 400 years, I've tried to be gracious and call you back and be gracious and call you back so the nations would know that I'm good. But now you're so wicked, the nations know you're worse than them. And so the priority of me making my name great is for me to punish you so that they would know that I'm good. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's just a really terrible, terrible chapter because you're kind of like, oh my gosh. I looked at the sermon schedule and um, it looks like that's slated for January 2nd. So come on in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that should be a, that should be a heartbreaking, but, but helpful. Sermon. Right. Um, so we feel like we've, you've hinted at this a little bit, um, but I'm curious if there are any other like ways that Ezekiel has hit you personally, as you've been studying through it in preparation for these sermons, you know, not just as something you want to communicate to the church, but something that's really changed you. Yeah. I mean, I haven't preached a sermon yet that I didn't identify with Mm -hmm. Israel, (laughs) you know, um, and not as starkly because I think that I, d- I don't think it's good to make all times seem utterly equal because I, I do think morally in terms of corruption and all that kind of thing, this moment in Israel's history was worse than what we're living in right now. I really do think that. I, I think that there's a indulgence that you can live in like that you're always living in one of the worst times. And I think compared to the history of the world, this is a magnificent time. And I think in some ways, even morally, it's not as bad as sometimes we might think. Um. But I, as I read through this, I like I do relatively speaking go, oh yeah, that applies to me. Maybe not like quite as starkly. Maybe I'm not as far as these folks have gone. But I, but this is a place where I need to think about this. I think of like, um, I mean, there's just a lot of ways where I just don't feel like I take God seriously. There's a lot of ways in terms of rejecting sin where I do. Where I, in terms of outward sin, I don't. But in terms of like, one of the things that convicts me a lot is just like the um, what gets my attention mm-hmm. for me is really tough because I I love videos and I love things and I love leisure and I like um, new experiences, the exotic or the different. I love focusing on my calling, doing the same thing over and over again and all the things that like I do for others, right? Like it's so easy for my mind to just go sideways, right? And um, that's been big for me and to see that as a kind of adultery um, to see that and to see like, I think one of the, yeah. So there's, there's, I mean like every, like every sermon so far. So like, like, like what, what it means to be a watchman has something that's, that's really touched me. And we're going to, we'll talk more about that when we talk about the shepherds in chapter 34. Um, but yeah, I mean, every, everything I read, I, I'm just like, one of the things I was reading, was reading this morning is, uh, I think it's in chapter maybe 32 where Ezekiel's wife dies. Hmm. which is my wife's least favorite passage in, the, in Ezekiel. And I thought what the passage was about when well, the first time I read it was that, that Ezekiel stood in for God and that, that just like Ezekiel would be in horrific anguish, but wasn't going to show it that that's what it was going to be like when Jerusalem was destroyed, that God was going to be in total anguish that the apple of his eye was destroyed and that, 
but like just as like Ezekiel didn't show it, you wouldn't be able to see it, see God's anguish. Like in real life, what it would look like was God was showing no emotion and allowing everything to be destroyed. But in his heart, the apple of his eye was destroyed. But that's not what the passage means. The way he says it, he says he says the Israelites are Ezekiel. That is, he says, um, when I destroy Jerusalem, you're going to hear about it. And you're going to realize that in order for you to really mourn, you have to accept that this is God's judgment and it's just and that you're wicked hmm. and that they deserved it and that you deserve it and deserved it when you got taken into exile in the first place. And he's like, and you won't do that. And so when it happens, you won't really mourn like a man losing the apple of his eye, his wife. Hmm. Like he's like, after all that, it still isn't going to get to you. And I think the thing that really makes my blood run cold when I really read the book of Ezekiel as carefully as I know how is that it's amazing how much doesn't get through to me. Hmm. It, that's the, I think that's the most terrifying thing. Like the whole book is about these people who should know better. God has given them every opportunity. He's given them every revelation. He's given them prophets and priests and a sacrificial system and his written word and like just everything. And they just, they just can't, won't get it. No matter what he does, every miracle, every oracle, everything he's taught them, everything he shows them, every step along the way, everything, even when he destroys the temple and their city and nothing is left, he's like, even then you're not really going to repent. Hmm. You're going to be sad. You're going to have some self-pity, but you're not going to like tear your clothes and throw down your turban and take off your sandals and not clean your beard and like really mourn and be changed. Like something cataclysmic has happened. Your life will never be the same again. Your wife just died. You know, it won't be like that. You, it won't touch you deeply enough to change you. And I, I, when I look at all of the sociological, psychological and economic data on how people don't change, I think about that mm -hmm. as a, as a part of it that like we, we structure our lives in such a way as that we're so shallow that nothing can touch us deeply. And like we watch TV shows where like, horrific life-changing sorts of things happen and then you just go on to the next second and it like it's it, it's not like it, it it doesn't i mean the fear like 20 years ago was it'll oh it's going to make people violent people are going to watch all these like violent shows or all this sexual innuendo or blah 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 and it's going to make people more sexually promiscuous it's going to make them more violent right and it turned out it was the opposite mm -hmm. it turned out that like when you watch that stuff it makes oh, none no, of it matters right. it, it, it's not like you it's not like if you saw somebody killed it wouldn't matter but it's just like it trains your mind to just kind of go on to the next thing. And it doesn't really touch you deeply in terms of how you should live your life and who you are. And I think that's this problem in Ezekiel. And I think it's a universal human problem. And I think that it's, I think we live in a culture that is special. I don't know, like better at doing that to people. Well, it's not just, you know, created dramas. It's also like the saturation of news from around the world you hear about right. you know 75 people dying in a landslide in Myanmar and you're like oh it's, like, it's a tuesday yeah um, it's just 75 people right yeah and um we're so desensitized because there's it's we're so flooded mm -hmm. the 2020 2500 people were murdered in in just like four zip codes in chicago this year mm -hmm. more people than were killed in the iraq war yeah that's just 2021 right you know I think murder was up in a lot of cities more than 100% this year, well over 80% more than the year previous, right? Mm -hmm. And, but that's just like, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's reminding me of, I think St. Augustine 
was he was kind of anti um, theater. Yeah. Well, yeah. And gladiatorial games. Well, yeah. But it's, oh, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Augustine, especially. Yeah. He was, he was kind of anti-theater. Yeah. Because he thought it was kind of this like emotional pornography where mm-hmm. you were like emoting along with these like characters that were almost always sinning right. terribly. Right. Um, and they don't really exist in your like you're stimulating your emotions over things that like aren't your life. They're not real life. They're not right in front of you. And um yeah, for those who I think this is book two of the City of God that you're speaking of right now. Maybe where so. he talks about yeah, like how how things in Roman culture were degrading to people, mm-hmm. whether it was the literature of the gods because the gods behaved worse than men, and people like attached themselves to that, and then and then how the theater affected people like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think he was onto something really human. Like I like art and I like theater and stuff, but right. there's a reason why some people used to argue like you should intentionally create ennobling art. Like art isn't just about telling the truth about how people behave at their worst. That's like the lowest form of art. The higher form of art is like inspiring people about what they could be at their best. Mm-hmm. Something that like might feel cheesy to the modern sensibilities, but like is still true. It is still true. People can find an altruism. They can trust by faith. They can sac- make sacrifices. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that that is a higher form of art. Mm-hmm. Getting back to Ezekiel. Yeah. <laughs> well, Ezekiel is full of ennobling drama. I mean, there's so much. Ezekiel is one of the most dramatic books in the Bible. Right. Chapter four is one of the best examples where he lays on his side for 390 days. Right. And, like and then the, flips over for 40. The severity of that image, like how far it has to go in order to get our attention. Mm-hmm. Right. And even then, without this environment that we have today, like that was an extreme example that people had to see every day in the flesh in order to get this message. And they still didn't really get it. (laughs) Yeah. 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 To know God is saying, this is what it's like to be your God. Mm -hmm. And this is what it's going to be like for you because it's been this way for me for 390 years. It's going to be like this for you when the exile comes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, these are really big, like Ezekiel's wife dying as a legitimate dramatic event, right? That's horrible. Mm-hmm. And, but it doesn't work. Like none of these things, like, I mean, at one level they work because by the end of the exile, the people of Israel have an attitude about idolatry that they'd never had before. And they return from it in a way that they had never had before. And when Jesus comes, the main thing he ends, he ends up dealing with the Jewish people about is not idolatry, but legalism. Mm-hmm. That they are following the Lord, but just doing it wrong. <laughs> And that's very different than in the time of Ezekiel, where they were not following the Lord at all, mm. even inside the very, very precincts of the temple. Yeah. You know, but yeah, there's a ton of incredible drama in Ezekiel. It's one of the most dramatic books in the Bible, and I think that when you read it well, God's intention is that it would be ennobling drama. But but a big part of it is in its capacity to humiliate you. Right. Like when you see how wrong you are and how right God is, that. Um, there's this place in, I think it's chapters 32 to 34, where he's talking about the king of Tyre. And he says, people think that that it's that God destroyed them because of, just because they were very wealthy. And Minohar said in his sermon that it was about unlimited greed. And in a way it was. Like at, it says that your beauty caused your pride and your pride confused your wisdom or defiled mm-hmm. your wisdom. And then you came apart. You started doing things that were really awful. Mm-hmm. And 
And I, I think that like, there's this, there's this like dramatic way God is trying to show this in like all these very varied ways. You know what I mean? I was going to say something very specific about that, but I flew out of my mind. So, yeah, but, but I do, th I think, I think the book of Ezekiel is really, really helpful in that it, it produces a lot of drama. Right. Um, but I, but I do think that part of it is that the humiliation and the beauty of God, you have to see God like he's displayed in chapter one. And then you have to see yourself as you're displayed in chapter 16 as this, the great prostitute, mm -hmm. you know? And if you really see that, then you're ready to receive the new heart, the dry bones to come to life and all the stuff that we're going to cover in the coming weeks when it turns from prophecies of our destruction to prophecies of God's redemption and promise. Mm -hmm. But only if somebody in a, in a humiliated state in the true sense of that term, like that has, that have been put in the state to find their humility will be able to receive atonement in the new covenant because salvation is by grace, not by your earnings. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be humble enough to receive that, you know, and honest enough to receive it from the God who's really there. Mm -hmm. So, um, We've covered some of the questions we were going to talk about. Just good news for the time limit. <laughs> um, can you think of anything maybe that we've covered in the past year that you want to clarify or um, any possible misunderstandings people might have developed out of what we've covered? I tend to think that the biggest area for this in the book of Ezekiel is surrounding the concept of shame. Mm-hmm. Because the first 30 chapters or so of the book, um, God is trying to shame the people of Israel into the state of repentance and, and finding their moral gravity again. And we live in a culture in which the concept of shame is thought of as an entirely unproductive emotion. And in the book of Ezekiel, shame or being ashamed is seen as the singular most important emotion they could possibly have and the only way they could be saved and have anything productive happen in their lives. So, I mean, it's like, it's literally 180 degrees diametrically opposed to how our culture has been thinking. And I actually don't think this is one of those cases where the, where the church and the gospel and the Bible say the opposite of the world. I think this is one of those cases where we're using the same language and we're actually talking about things that border and overlap, but that really are different. And so um, I do think that there's a kind of self-hatred that comes from feeling like you're never enough. And it takes away from your sense of, as a person is of being justified. That is, I have the right to be here and I, my life matters and I can be loved and I can have connection with people. And in a culture, Brittany Brown calls it a culture of scarcity. Like there just isn't enough. And so we're always just trying to be enough. And in that context, people tend to feel ashamed of themselves because they're just not enough and they pursue perfectionism and so on and they work hard and they feel awful. And, and our culture says that kind of shame is really unproductive. And I agree with that. I think it is unproductive. I think that our justification is ontological. We're loved by God. We're made in God's image and we can be godly. And those are the things that dictate, dictate our worth. And there is no scarcity of any of those things. You being godly doesn't take away anything from me. 
It only gives to me. It makes me being godly more possible. The fact that you're made God's, God's image doesn't take away my ability to be made in God's image. We're both made in God's image right. and God can love both of us fully. Right. The right. fact that you're gifted by him with spiritual gifts doesn't detract from my spiritual gifts. Nope. They complement each other right. and creates abundance. Right. And so in God's world, there isn't that kind of scarcity. And so that that scarcity that Brown talks about, I think, is present in our culture. And I think it is one of the great lies of our culture. And when she says that that's an unproductive, that kind of shame is an unproductive emotion, I think she's 100% correct. So I think that's very, that's very different from saying from from not having moral categories what, what god is establishing is moral categories in which we are we are actually obligated to engage in certain actions that are just and rightly to, rightly um, expected of us and we refuse them and we don't feel bad about it <laughs> and the the capacity for human beings to feel shame or guilt when they do something that is outside of what they're obligated to do is a healthy emotion basically every society has always believed that and um, it, it, because it's true, anybody who doesn't feel any shame for what they do, what they ought to do, actually lacks the empathy to recognize that they are connected to other people. And they're not, they're not, as Brown would say, unworthy of connection. They are incapable of connection. They're what we'd call a sociopath, right? They're, they're not capable of engaging with other people justly as the other person deserves, right? So Jesus didn't talk about empathy. He talked about doing to others the way you would have them do to you which is a much more precise and clear understanding of what is sometimes talked about as empathy. I don't like the concept of empathy because it's too broad. I don't think it's, I think Jesus gets at it when they're like, you don't have to feel what other people feel. You know, as a human being, how you would want to be treated. They are a human being just like you. And one thing you share is that you're both made in God's image. Now, as an image bearer, how should that person be treated? Whatever that is, is what you justly owe that other person. It's their just deserts morally. If you do not do that to and for them, you are acting unjustly. And you should have a feeling of self-reproach for that. That's psychologically healthy, right? And spiritually healthy. And when you don't have that, you have what the book of Ezekiel calls five or six times lewdness. Mm -hmm. That is, you do what's detestable and unjust. And you have no compunction about it at all. No guilt, no sense of shame. And God's like, for that person, the person who is lewd, what has to be restored is their moral gravity. Mm -hmm. Or they can't understand or value anything the way it should be valued. And if they can't do that, they can't live towards creation meaningfully because they don't know the meaning of anything. Morality is, is literally the meaning of everything in our relationship to that meaning. Mm -hmm. And therefore, what we how we should interact with it and what we owe it, right? If So therefore, if you do not have a moral conscience, you don't understand reality or anything in it and you can't behave in it properly, right? So you have to understand meaning and then from meaning morality, right? And then therefore you would have a sense of shame. So by restoring a person's sense of shame, if they're lewd, you're restoring their sense of meaning and through that, their sense of morality so that they can be rightly ordered to creation. And so um, what as Christians we have to do is we have to we have to be able to understand both of these concepts. And one of the things I've been trying to work on with you a little bit, and I'm planning on writing a little bit more on, is exactly how they go together. I'm reading one of Brene Brown's books right now because I don't want to misrepresent her. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure I get her views exactly right, so that I can both agree and disagree with them, or say when she says this, she can't mean that. Mm -hmm. Because I I think that the Christian, and the reason why I say this is not because I want to make peace with secular psychology. It's because secular psychology is right about some of these things in the ways in which the church has lagged behind whenever we've become. Um, moralistic and we haven't been therapeutic enough but then at the same time on the, on the other side we it, it, like it's a it's a really terrible thing for our culture and for the church 
to create people filled with this sense of scarcity shame and yet still be lewd. And for some reason, the legalistic Christian church, as well as the surrounding secular culture, is producing these people. And Brene Brown says, yeah, there's narcissists everywhere, joking with somebody in the audience in one of her videos. Well, that's what they mean. They mean that there are people in the world who, A, are totally broken on the inside with self-hatred because they live in a culture of scarcity and they, they're not justified. They're not good enough and they know it. And they behave in incredibly immoral ways and are lewd about it <laughs> and have no fear of the Lord before their eyes. And that, I mean, think of how wretched a state that is. Yeah. Like, can a human being be in a more morally and spiritual wretched state than that? I don't know. You're psychologically tortured all the time because you aren't good enough. And you're psychologically broken all the time because you aren't, you don't have the meaning of morality that's meant to root, root your self creation. Mm -hmm. And it just breaks my heart because like the Christian gospel solves both of those mm -hmm. in a really beautiful, complete, permanent, empowering way. Mm -hmm. And yet people just walk past it like a gravestone that's been by a road for 10,000 years and it's there, but they just don't see it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, it breaks my heart because I, I believe the gospel has never been more relevant in its mm -hmm. saving power and psychological delivering power in our present real lives, as well as our eternal souls. And I feel like people are, have never been so blase about sharing it as Christians or a, about hearing it as unbelievers. This feels like a great moment to ask, how would you summarize, like, what is the good news of Ezekiel for us today? Yeah, so I, I, I want to tease people and say, come to church the next seven <laughs> weeks. <laughs> because what, at this turn in like chapter 34, mm -hmm. it turns towards the good news. And God starts to, because he's made some comments. Like in chapter 16, he says, when I get you to the point where you shut your mouth and never open it again, because you, you feel the level of moral gravity you have to, then I will atone for your sins mm -hmm. and make a new covenant with you and you will be mine. And so there's essentially three things God offers. Like one is what he is reclaiming is the image of God that's in everybody. Everybody is, everybody is enough. So when you talk about scarcity, shame, everybody is enough because everybody bears the image of God. Like you can be good at math, but that's not much when you compare it to the fact that everybody else has the image of God too, right? And so that's why morality is not rooted in people's skills or whether or not they're enough. Whether or not somebody deserves connection isn't rooted in their skills or whether or not they're, it's rooted in the fact that they are ontologically made in the image of God. They are in his image and they are loved by him, right? And then secondly, that God morally atones for us. So when you receive that moral gravity, when you feel ashamed, God makes you just by giving, freely giving you an atonement in the death and resurrection of Christ. So God, who stands as judge over all things, counts you innocent. And what you've done is paid for in his atonement, which we find out later is the death and resurrection of Jesus, his Christ. So that if God is for you, who can stand against you? You are counted as just in this world. No matter how anybody reproaches you for your past sins, you know that you're, you have peace with God, ethically and morally speaking, and you can act for his good in the world, right? And you don't have to be ashamed of yourself. Though you can speak of your past shameful acts, mm -hmm. shamefully in pleading with people not to be like you in those ways and to call them out of them. And in humility, treat others like you have to look at the plank in your own eye before you remove the speck in their eye, right? It creates this everlasting humility, even in the midst of this everlasting confidence in God, which Ephesians 3 speaks about, right? So, and, and then lastly, he, he actually promises the ability for this. So you get into chapter 36 and 37, and God starts talking about how 
there's this valley of dry bones, people who are just dead. And that's what the Israelites were. They were like people who died completely decomposed and their bones are baking in the sun and starting to crack. Like you couldn't be deader, right? And then he says, the, the miracle of God, he, God says to Ezekiel to speak to the dry bones to live. That is God's word goes forward and they come to life. Like this, like the, the sinews grow and the muscles grow and they come to life. And there's like this whole army of people who are alive and breathing. And, he, and then he says in the next chapter, this is what it means when I take out a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, right? What Christians call the miracle of regeneration, that God doesn't just offer salvation to us. He actually supernaturally works in us the change of heart. We have to go along with it. That's what we call faith. You have to go along with the work of God. But God does the work, even the work of God that makes you able to do it through his regeneration, through the work of the spirit, that he gives you what he demands of you. And I think that's really good news for people, both in alleviating ourselves from shame, morally speaking, that we lose our lewdness. We find our moral gravity so that going forward, we don't keep sinning like lewd people. Be like, oh, well, I emptied my bag of sins. I can go fill it up again, right? And having no conscience about it. No, you're saved out of the guilt of your past sins, but in such a way as to have a moral gravity to pursue righteousness in the future out of love and desire, but with humility as well as confidence. And then relative to us not being enough, you are forced back into this identity where you have to realize that at base, what you are is someone made in the image of God who is loved by God who has sinned against God, who has been redeemed by God and justified by God and is now again loved by God and in a new covenant with him, that you are enough. I mean, you're everything you were ever meant to be. And you and, you're, and the only thing that he wants from you for you to be enough is for you to just be what he made you. Mm-hmm. To be godly, that is live out the image of God under the love of God. That's all he's ever wanted from you. And no matter what anybody thinks about you, no matter what anybody gives you, no matter what promotion you don't or don't do or don't get, you are always exactly what you're supposed to be. When under the love of God and the image of God, you act out what you are Mm -hmm. in what we call godliness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, As you're describing that, I'm thinking, I'm getting excited about, you know, hearing this good news declared. Um, And it makes me think, you know, people, when they think of bringing, inviting guests, Mm -hmm. um, they're often looking for a really like, sounds like a really practical series. You know, there's a Uh, series on marriage that we're doing right now, or there's a series on like managing your finances, or there's just like this series about hope. Um, And this might not seem like the most obvious um, series to invite someone new to get a taste of church. Um, Why would that be a mistake not to invite new people to this series? Yeah, I think that, I think that um, the the first two sermons are going to be are going to be more encouraging, I think, for believers. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes inviting non-Christians to sermons that are focused at believers can be really helpful because if unbelievers see how we talk to ourselves and it's not the hypocritical, self-affirming way that they expect, it's self-critical but still encouraging, I think that that can be really helpful. But after the first two sermons, when we get into chapters 35, 36, 37, um, and then on to like this new temple God's going to make, like the rest of Ezekiel is mostly promissory. It's like, like, even though you guys have been this bad, there's going to be a good future. I'm not, I am not giving up. I will succeed in creating a good future. You will be my people and I will be your God. Mm-hmm. First, you have to know that I'm the Lord. But when I get that message through, that's the end of the judgment. That's the end of the punishment. That's the end. Like, I'll, I just have to get you to that point. And the minute you are humbled, I can take you anywhere. Mm-hmm. Good. And that's what all these other passages, passages are for. So I do think that... Um, the third week in, so the third week in, of the year, I'm going to preach on justice and I'm going to go back and reprise the themes of justice in Ezekiel. That's the Sunday right before MLK Sunday. 
And I'm going to talk about educational and economic justice relative to the book of Ezekiel. I know educational sounds weird because educational institutions are not mentioned in Ezekiel. I think education in our modern culture is probably the closest to land distribution in the Old Testament. Hmm. Because in a totally agrarian culture, what you needed to be able to make a living was some land. In a totally technological service-based culture or a culture like we live in, you either need like what we call blue blue collar artisan skills, or you need white collar education. That is like the and, and that's an investment in you rather than in the land. So investing in ourselves and our human capital makes us able to actually have economic opportunity in our culture. So I think the redistribution of land, that justice is probably not utterly but closely transferable to education. Right, that everybody in their generation should have access to education such that they can participate economically. And then secondly, that there's a bunch of stuff on economic justice in the uh, stuff with Tyre and stuff in the city and so on that I, that I think is worth talking about. So we'll talk about justice there. That I think will be encouraging for non-Christians, especially if they have a more progressive bent, because some of these things, like they, they'll be personally gratified some. And I'm saying, look, here's what the Bible says about this, and this is relevant to you and your political views or your social views, your, your views on justice. But then also God judges them and as well and says, and balances it to the truth. And so I think that that would be helpful as well for people. So that's that third Sunday. And then after that, we'll focus on these covenantal promises, which I think will be really encouraging. Mm-hmm. I think this is my last question. Okay. Um, so we always encourage people to read the passages on their own throughout the week, study them, meditate on them, um, read ahead, read the full context, just be in the word as we're going through a series. But for a book like Ezekiel, that can be easier said than done for Mm -hmm. a lot of people because it's very dense. There's a lot of context that they don't understand, a lot of images that are kind of confusing unless you spend a lot of time with them, or it can just feel really dry and um, Mm -hmm. out of reach. What advice do you have for people who maybe their New Year's resolution <laughs> is to get back in the Word, to be in the Word yeah. regularly? It would be great to be reading along with the series. Yeah. Yeah. I would really encourage everybody who's listening to this. If you're a believer, um, we live in such a a world that does not assume Jesus and his ways and his in the things of God that, that um, you should do what every king of Israel was commanded to do, which was read from the Word every day of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have an enormous amount of power. And um, God, the way God told people with power and wealth and opportunity like Israel's kings was to copy down the Bible word for word with your bare hands and then carry it around with you and read it. I think that was because there weren't printing presses yet, but they had to make their own manuscript. Um, and so I think we should read the Bible every day. Uh, if you were start to say, well, I'll start in Ezekiel and you're, you find yourself not reading the Bible, read something else in the Bible. <laughs> Just, let's just go somewhere else. I, the next big series we're going to do is going to be in the book of John. Mm-hmm. So just go read the book of John. Start working through the book of John. Um, Ezekiel, yeah, Ezekiel, I, I said this at the, I think the first sermon, is that Jewish rabbis who were in training were not allowed to read or study the book of Ezekiel until they were 30 years old. Because they, it, they thought it was so prone for people to misunderstand it and for people to get off on wild interpretations and so on. So this idea that Ezekiel is difficult is a real thing. I also, it's not just you, yeah. your listener. <laughs> yeah. I also have found that once I spent a little bit of time with it, I read it three or four times and I I learned a little bit of the historical context. I paid attention to some of the details in the text, not just the general statements in the text. Man, it broke open pretty easy. Like, like it's pretty clear what these oracles are about, what they're saying. And you can get the main point out of them. There are a couple, there were three or four that was like, they were hard to sort out. But they weren't that bad. 
I think you can get a lot and there's a lot of help online. Like you can, you can find places that will explain different oracles to you. You, what you can't find is sermons on these passages. <laughs> As um, we've discovered already. Yeah. Which the fun thing is, is that now anybody on planet earth who wants to hear an exposition of these passages can now get it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I guess you're now the YouTube authority. On yeah. Which is really funny. Yeah. Which is not translated into a lot of hits. <laughs> just say right now. <laughs> just wait. You're just ahead of the curve. Yeah. So um, anyway. Uh, yeah. So I would say, yeah, I read it. But, but, but like you, like you were saying, I think that well, you were saying, or I was saying whatever. Uh, I just read the Bible. Just please read the Bible, read the Bible and read the new Testament a lot. And at some point, you will find out that the New Testament, that 45% of the New Testament's meaning is so intertwined with understanding the Old Testament that you just can't really ignore the Old Testament forever. Mm -hmm. And so then you have to read the Old Testament with new vigor and care. And then you're realizing how much it's, and then you're like, oh, that's in the New Testament. Oh, that's in, and then you begin to see the, the connection, right. you know? Yeah. And if you're Listening, you're uh, an attender here at High Point or a member. If you're local to Madison, joining a small group is another great way to yeah. like um, have conversations, discussions, hear other people's perspective, ask your questions. Um, throughout the series, if you have specific questions, don't hesitate to send them in to podcast at highpointchurch.org or during our AMA times and the services. Yeah. And also at the beginning of this series, we released a devotional that was designed for you to it didn't follow along week by week with the sermons, but it was a way to get you in Ezekiel, meditating on them, some guided questions yeah. and reading other references in scripture to get broader context for what was being discussed in Ezekiel. And it's not too late to pick that up or revisit it. You can find it still on our website at highpointchurch.org slash devotional. Start it up in the new year. Um, you'll still benefit from it. Yeah. And there's a little bit of historical information at the beginning of that devotional, I mm -hmm. think, that will get you some of the historical context. I, I find that just some, that like just a little bit of historical context goes a long way in interpreting stuff in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any last words for? The no, I just want, I want to say, I just really, um, I just, I love High Point. They have um, benefited finished from slash endured this series really well, I think. And um, it was a little bit of a depressing time during like a COVID year to be in Ezekiel, I'm sure. <laughs> but I think that, um, I'm really touched how people responded to it and like that I, I was thinking maybe we could shrink the church when I planned this I planned preaching on Ezekiel before COVID started I think if I remember correctly and uh, I was the plan was the church was kind of growing a little bit too fast and I wanted to I wanted to stop the growth for a, like a blip so I was like I'll preach through Ezekiel it'll be great but the church won't grow and <laughs> I feel like the church has really been vibrant during this time and it's been really encouraging so maybe we'll start in Jeremiah in a couple of, I'm just kidding, we're going to do time next. <laughs> you wanted to grow um, down, the, grow the roots down. Grow the roots you. down, yeah. Hopefully that's been happening for you yeah. as you're listening, as you're studying with us through Ezekiel. And we look forward to having you join us in the new year. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like those. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow becoming a more substantive disciple and part of the local church. 
this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thank you for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.